Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. If you got your Bibles, I want you to open them to the book of Philippians, chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. As you're turning over there, I discovered, much to my dismay, that you had Dr. Robert Smith Jr. here last week. In the homiletical pantheon, there is no greater exemplar of exegetical elegance and excellence and doxological dominance than you would have had with uh, Dr. Smith and uh, as a great mentor and teacher of mine. And when you're having to follow that, it's just like, oh, Lord. I started praying for the rapture really, really hard. As uh, we were uh, enjoying his uh, sermons. But I can say this uh, Dr. Aiken and uh, Lottie, uh, no two people uh, other than my parents have been greater influence uh, on me, my understanding of ministry, life, uh, family. Uh, no two generous people you'll ever, ever meet. And uh, as a uh, proud alum of this school, we could not be more delighted that uh, you two have been leading so faithfully and joyfully these many, many years. And uh, we praise God for you and pray for you every day. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which have happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ, even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach preach from selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my chains, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the deliverance defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. And may the Lord add honor to the reading of his word. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. If you were to ask me what I want you to walk away with in just a few moments, here's what I hope you'll take away. That the proper perspective keeps the church on task and on target. The main idea of this passage that Paul is intending for us to to grab a hold of and not only change our thinking but affect our choice in life and in ministry will be that the proper perspective keeps the church on task and on target. And so the question question naturally arises, how so? In this passage, there are three ways in which the proper perspective keeps the church on task and on target. The first is found in verses 12 through 14, that when facing difficult circumstances, the proper perspective keeps the church on task and on target. The second way, in verses 15 through 17, that when facing difficult people, the proper perspective keeps the church on task and on target. And in verse 18, the last way is that we can respond the right way to both of those difficulties when, as the proper perspective keeps us on task and on target. Let's jump into the passage in verses 12 through 14 and just walk through this passage. And I pray that as we discuss 
uh, what Paul's wanting us to know. You will be encouraged as I am encouraged when I read this passage. Pick up with me in verse 12 again. And I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Well, what things? Well, you know, you're here at seminary. You've already taken New Testament intro. You've already taken some class that uh, has uh, brought you up to speed on what's going on in Paul's life and in the New Testament. Paul is under house arrest in Rome waiting to make his appeal towards Caesar. Well, you might have to ask, well, what in the world happened to Paul in the first place? Well, he was accused back in Jerusalem over two years prior to the writing of this of taking a Gentile, Trophimus, in or beyond the court of the Gentiles in the temple of Jerusalem. And, of course, you can imagine the response of that. People just weren't mildly inconvenienced or annoyed. It caused an uproar so much so that he was arrested, finally makes his appeal, and at the end of a, over a two-year process, here he is in Rome awaiting to make his appeal toward Caesar. You know one thing or one aspect of life and ministry that I did not necessarily walk away with when I was set in your shoes or stood in your shoes and sat in the seat that you're sitting I was here a little over 25 years ago, and as I'm sitting in chapel and as I'm going through classes, encouraged, amazed, my, my love for church history, theology, and preaching was uh, the fans were uh, uh, the flames were fanned into a roaring hot, white, hot, uh, white hot passion about what it is to study the things of God, study church history, and then to learn to develop uh, my skill set for preaching. I sat in a room uh, going through Greek with Dr. Maurice Robinson. Nowhere to hide when you got in Qumran number K, cave number four, and he's asking you to exegete uh, Philippians from the original language. Nowhere to hide when you sat in the smaller advanced classes and the professors are pouring into you to see if you're able to give them back the great information that they are sharing with you. I was encouraged, I was excited to go out and launch out into ministry. But I never remember anybody saying anything like this. Kevin, there's going to come a day and time when you're going to make people so mad in ministry that they wouldn't spit in your ear if your brain was on fire. It's true. Now, I know mom and dad have told you you're wonderful. Mom and dad have celebrated you. They have poured their life into you. But I can promise you, there awaits difficult circumstances and difficult people that will await you, that either by what you say or what you don't say, by what you do or by what you don't do, you will find difficulties arise in your life. And if your heart has been captivated by the culture instead of captured by Christ, you will seek to satisfy your cravings, your conveniences, and your comforts. That's what happens when our hearts are captivated by the culture. But if your heart will be captured by Christ, there will be an ironclad commitment and conviction to fulfill the great commandment and the great commission. So which will it be for you? The habits that you are developing here and now while you're in this place will either enrich you and enhance your ministry or will impoverish you when you start your life in ministry once you leave this place. Paul's saying, my circumstances 
have actually worked out for the advancement of the gospel. You know the gospel. Paul gives his summary in 1 Corinthians 15. It was the gospel that Paul is not ashamed of in Romans chapter 1. It was the gospel to which Paul was called to preach in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This gospel where you and I discover about the life, death, uh, and burial and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ where Paul, as he walks us through the Roman road, says that every person on the face of the planet is born in sin and with sin. It's incurable, it's inescapable if left to our own devices. But thank God that verse five, or chapter five, verse eight, but God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet, what? Sinners, that's everybody on the planet. You know, he mentioned, uh, Dr. Aiken mentioned that I have uh, grandchildren. For those of you who haven't achieved that, I'm looking at a lot of people who haven't, I promise you, should the Lord bless you with that, it will change your life in good ways and, and not so good ways. But it doesn't take you long to realize that even that precious little grandchild has a sin nature. You see the selfishness, you see the intolerance, did you know that a three-year-old is nothing more than an uncontrollable tyrant at times? And you can't reason with them. Dr. Aiken shares a story that when my son, Kevin Jr., I'm bad with names, so if I have trouble remembering your name, it's more about me, not about you. But as we were in a house, little Kevin came up to him, and Kevin's about three, uh, three years old or something, and I don't know what uh, sparked this discussion, but Kevin looked at him and said, I love Satan. Three-year-old. Now, he just said that to Dr. Aiken. Now, what do you think he is thinking in his mind? Are you thinking Anselm, cured a homo, why God became man? Right? I mean, is that going through your mind? Is he thinking some elaborate, depth, uh, deep theological explanation? No, you know what went through his mind? That's wonderful, Kevin. Go change the channel. Because he's a three-year-old. But you will find in life, just as Paul did, as he's chained to this Roman uh, Praetorian guard, that, that he is now encumbered, he is inhibited, and he doesn't have, obviously, freedom of movement. But because of Paul's perspective, he's not chained to the Praetorian guard. The Praetorian guard is chained to Paul. The, the chained person was unchained in the demonstration and the living out of his mission, which was that Jesus Christ alone is the way to have eternal life. Romans 5, 8 continues, but God demonstrated his love and toward us that while we were yet sinners, what? Christ died for us. And in that, you and I find our liberation from that incurable and inescapable sin problem that every person on the planet has. And then Paul will go on to say that if you believe and if you confess in your heart and mind that Jesus Christ is God's son and God's raised him from the dead, then you shall be what? Paul never got over that. affected every aspect of Paul. He goes on to say it just a, a little, in a few verses from verse 18. For me to li live is what? Christ. Your perspective. Do you think more about culture and its cravings, comforts, and conveniences? Or is Christ your dominant thought, convictional co commitment to the great commission and the great commandment? 
Paul is chained to the Praetorian Guard. You know them. They were that 9,000-member group of elite soldiers. They had assassinated Caligula, put Claudius on the throne, would even direct the uh, uh, decisions of Nero. Very powerful at this time in Roman history. And yet Paul is not dissuaded. He says, most, uh, and the palace guard and to all the rest, that my chains are in Christ. Paul would not sell out. Paul would not capitulate. Paul wouldn't bow to the dictates of the emperor or the culture. You see, his difficult circumstances did not determine Paul's focus or his mission. The question is, does culture influence us to the degree that we equivocate from our passion for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? And then he goes on to say, And most of the brethren in the Lord have become confident by my chains and are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Friends, life is full of difficult circumstances. You don't have to live very long to determine that, right? If you put your hope in the stock market, you're up, you're down. You're up, you're down. Your circumstances change. What's going to be your true north? What's going to guide you? Matter of fact, when you start serving and leading, the people that you'll serve and lead, they're going to be looking for you. They're going to be looking to you to direct them and, and lead the path to Jesus Christ. But if we're too much like our culture, if our circumstances are difficult, too many of us, we will equivocate and cave in instead of push through and overcome. But there's a second way that we see in this passage that uh, proper perspective keeps us on task and on target, and that's when facing difficult people. Look in verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from selfish, some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not seriously supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. Difficult people you will have in your life. It may be that you're the difficult person in somebody else's life. I mean, if truth be told, there are days when I wake up and I look in the mirror and I go, you're the difficult person today. And notice that Paul does mention that there are people in Rome and undoubtedly also in, in, uh, in uh, Philippi that are really encouraged. They're emboldened by Paul's change because they know Paul is there because he is on mission. He doesn't back up. He doesn't give up. He stays focused on the mission of the church, and that is to make disciples who can make disciples. And you're developing those skill sets here and now. And the question becomes, when did going gets tough, Will you be one of the tough that gets going in making disciples? You've got to wake up every morning, and that's got to be your focus. You can't just have, be half-stepping or half-hearted. You've got to be all in on making disciples who can make disciples. And Paul says, yeah, obviously I'm encouraged by those who are more encouraged and, more, and, and are even bolder because of where I'm at. But you and I both know this. We can have 10 people give us an attaboy, but it's that one word of criticism and discouragement that will occupy and consume our mind. Notice what he's saying. He says there are those who preach. They're preaching Christ. It's not that they're heretical. He deals with those that will add to the gospel in chapter 3 of Philippians. 
But he says these people are preaching Christ. So their message is right, but their motives. What do you do when you think or you imagine or maybe you even know that those in your sphere of your ministry context are preaching from envy, strife, or they're preaching from selfish ambition? You know what it's easy to do? It's easy to start pointing. It's easy to start calling those folks out. Paul doesn't do that. Paul says, because the message matters most, everything else is second place. And he doesn't let the fact that they are preaching at his expense, supposing to add affliction. That word there, supposing to add affliction, that phrase there is, are they thinking that they're adding emotional stress to Paul by the way they're preaching? Well, if that was their case, they didn't know Paul very well. You know, we have an opportunity in, uh, in our world today to get your thoughts out, I mean, just that quick, right? You know, you have Twitter, you have Instagram, you have a, a social media platforms, and, and the temptation is, if I had a thought, I need to publish it. Well, I want to encourage you to realize your strength area and also how thick your skin is or is not. Because if you put something out there today, you might think in your little echo chamber, might think this is perfectly okay. But you know well as I do, there are the naysayers, there are the criticizers, there are the people who are gonna come at you. And if you're not careful, the attack, even if it's coming from those who are envious, they desire to have what you have and so that you get no delight, no joy in it, that attack, or they're just wanting to promote themselves at your expense, it doesn't take very long and you start losing your joy. It doesn't take very long. You start finding yourselves dissuaded, disappointed. And after you have experienced those two days, discouragement and despair are often not far behind. But friends, I want you to know this. Paul never let the motives of other people ever distract him. Matter of fact, you know what he says in chapter 2, verse 3, uh, Philippians, he says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. He would even go on to say in uh, verse 30 of chapter 1, I know you're going through a difficult time just like I am, but wherever you find yourself, do not let that get you off mission. My brothers and sisters, like I said earlier, over 25 years ago, I sat right where you sat. And when I walked out of here, I guess I should have known better, knowing my personality, but, you know, sometimes us younger men are not as self-aware as we would like to be and maybe as we should be. Sometimes maybe we are blissfully unaware of self. I never imagined in the least that people would actually get angry at me in ministry, and yet... Apparently, I have that gift. I have the gift of offense. Apparently, I have the gift of discouragement. It's not intentional. It's just something I do naturally, apparently. And what you will find is that the chorus will rise. Now, my response is, okay, what did I say? Now, of course, let me just be honest. Joy's sitting here, so I can't, I can't uh, um, frame things in a more favorable light to myself. She will often come and say, did you say this? And I go, well, this is what I meant to know. No, no, no. Did you use those words and was this your attitude? Did you use your angry resting face when you said those words? I'm afraid so. Then you need to go clean your mess up. 
I can just tell you, if we will demonstrate humility and obedience to the cause of Christ, just like our Savior does in the, uh, in the Christ hymn in 5 through 11 in chapter 2, it will save us $100 worth of heartache if we instead try to re uh, retreat to our pride and let that protect us or try to insulate us, not protect us, but insulate us from making things right with those that we hurt. Your people need to see that. You're going to mess up. You're going to make mistakes. And as much as you and I want people to extend us forgiveness, extend us grace, what about those who hurt you, who say things ill of you? Will you extend the same grace to them that you want others to extend to you? It's a two-way street, and it's a two-way street to freedom, not frustration. But there is one last great way that we find in this passage that the proper perspective keeps us on task and on target when we face difficult circumstances, face difficult people. And notice what Paul says in verse 18. It is when we respond the right way. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, uh, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice and will rejoice. Paul didn't say, I'm going to be happy. Happy comes from an old Middle English word, happenstance. If your stance happens to be good, you're happy. What happens if your stance or your conditions don't happen to be so good, then you're not happy. No, Paul is talking about something much more significant, something much more deeper. Paul is talking about something that revolves around the delight that our Savior would say, I delight in doing the will of the one who sent me. I wonder, Will, can you and I say that? Even in the difficult times, even dealing with the difficult people, do we delight in doing the will of the Father? Jesus did, and now here Paul is saying, even though I'm sitting chained to this Praetorian guard, even though there are people taking advantage of my situation here in Rome and in Philippi, as long as the unadulterated, uncompromised gospel of Jesus Christ that will liberate and elevate every person on the planet who accepts Jesus as Lord and Savior is preached. Paul says, I rejoice. But notice that next phrase. Don't think this is some temporary literary moment that Paul is having here. Paul says, I rejoice right here, right now. He's made a He's made a decision. But notice how this decision continues. He says, and I will rejoice. Friends, rejoice is a choice. You and I have been given the answer to our thinking problems. You know stinking thinking leads to a smelly life, right? Absolutely it does. So Paul is telling us the proper way to look at wherever you find yourselves is stay on task and on target. Don't become distracted. Don't become dissuaded. Stay on mission. Stay on target. But when they come against you, and they will, because the gospel is offensive, is it not? Every time you attack someone's ability to earn their way to wherever it is they want to go, some might say heaven, some, some nebulous notion of heaven, but when you start saying Jesus is the only way, pride naturally arises, and offense is created. And that's when the attacks come. And Paul says, 
as long as the message of Christ is, is unadulterated and uncorrupted, I choose to rejoice. See the difference? If you're captivated by the culture, it's all about your cravings, all about your comforts, all about your conveniences. When a heart is captured by Christ, unyielding, undeniable, uh, irreplaceable resolve to live out the great commandment and fulfill the great commission. That's what you've been tasked to. And for those of you that will walk across this stage in just a few weeks' time and will launch out into ministry and you'll launch out into this next chapter of your life, will you be one of those that will leave this place excited, encouraged, and enthused, but also realistic? in knowing that trouble awaits you, just like those bullies that may or may or may not have ridden your school bus when you were younger. You will find spiritual bullies in and outside the church. But notice this, friends, we can be just like Paul. As long as that incredible message, liberating and free message of the gospel is preached, when Christ is preached, you know what we discover? That we have an advocate in heaven who awaits us. When Christ is preached, we have the bread of life, the bridegroom and the balm of Gilead to soothe and console us. We have a counselor and the chief cornerstone. We have our defender and our deliverer. We have the exact image of the everlasting God. When Christ is preached, we discover that he is our friend and our fortress. He is the good shepherd and the great God. When Christ is preached, we discover He's our high priest and the Holy One of Israel. He is the Emmanuel and the great I Am. He is our justifier, judge, and Jehovah. He is the King of kings, Lord of lords, the lily of the valley, the lion of the tribe of Judah, and the Lamb of God. He's the mighty God, mediator, and our Messiah. When Christ is preached, we discover he is the name above all names and the only name under heaven whereby men must be saved. He is omnipresent, omnibenevolent. He is our priest, our prophet, and the prince of peace. He quiets the storms of life. He's the rose of Sharon, the root of David, and our redeemer. He is our savior. He is the truth, true light, true vine, and our teacher. He's the unchangeable one, the victorious one, the way and the word, and he has an x-ray-like ability to see our deepest need and meet it. He is zealous for our worship and he awaits for us at Zion's Hill. That's who Christ is and that's the Christ we preach. And years down the road, when you've preached that Christ and you've dealt with those difficult people, and you've endured those difficult circumstances, I pray that you'll be able to say this, just like a good friend of mine from Colorado said many, many times, it's our job to love our people enough to take them right where they're at, but love them too much to leave them there. What journey are you going to be taking the people on that you serve and lead. Those habits, as Augustine called it, the habitus, that's being developed here and now. You're making daily decisions. Those decisions are based on choices, decisions that eventually become habits. What habit will you have that when distractions come, you're not dissuaded, you're not distracted. You don't become 
dejected. The reality is you will be disparaged in ministry, but you don't have to be discouraged in ministry. If you have your dependence on and your sufficiency in Jesus Christ, what you will discover is a light of delight, a life of joy, because you've made that choice. I pray that you'll do what I didn't do when I sat where you sat, where you sit, and where you'll sit in a few moments when you make your way to class. You'll purpose in your heart that each and every day you continue to develop that love relationship with Jesus. I got way caught up in the task of ministry, the task of doing. Got my to-do list, I gotta do that. And if I wasn't careful what I found out when I was in school, when I sat back there, I was just like, bro, you need to hurry up. No joy, no delight, because I neglected to have that intimacy with Christ that sustains and satisfies. May you choose, just like Paul, I choose to make Christ first. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you in the quiet of this moment, acutely aware of the word that we have read, the words that have been spoken, and God, I pray they will encourage, and God, they will edify. I know when I come to this passage, my heart is encouraged. And God, I thank you for what, through your Holy Spirit, Paul has left us, not to follow Paul, but to follow Jesus. And for these ministers, these leaders that are in the making, some are already serving, some are already leading. God, I ask your blessing upon them. God, I pray that you would put a hedge of protection around them and their family so that when the enemy comes and come, he will. God, they'll persevere and they'll prevail in Christ. And it's to this that we pray, we ask, and we find great delight in. It's in Jesus' name I pray. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit scbts.edu.